Welcome to the Raw Leadership Podcast with me, Steve Barker. Leadership is not a badge you wear, it's a skill. It's a skill that takes years to master and it evolves around emotional intelligence and human interaction. In this podcast, I will be interviewing industry-leading experts who will share their stories, insights and personal struggles during their leadership journey. Even more, based upon my 25 plus years of leadership experience from my military and civilian sector careers, I will be diving deep into 12 key areas of leadership, areas that are often referred to as soft skills, but are far from soft. They are critical to the success of any leader, regardless of where they are on their leadership journey. I will be sharing insights, hints, tips, hacks, strategies, and learnings based upon the skills I had to develop and finely tune to be an effective leader within the military which ultimately got me handpicked to teach the future of the Royal Air Force as a basic recruiting structure. So join me, Steve Barker, as we explore leadership in its rawest form through the Raw Leadership Podcast. G'day everybody and welcome to this podcast. I've been joined today by the legendary Cohen Ray. Cohen's one of Australia's leading specialists and performance specialists in business, and he's been helping thousands of business owners succeed in their, their lives, making millions of dollars for people. But uh, for those of you listening today who may not have heard from Kerwin, Cohen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Steve, I'm amazing, mate. How are you? Absolutely outstanding. I just want to say, first of all, thank you so much for sharing your time um, with with us today. Pleasure. I'm really excited to, to jump into this. So I gave you a, a little bit of a brief introduction, but for the listeners who are out there who don't know who Cohen Ray is, how would you describe yourself and what it is that you do? Mate, I normally would re- answer that question and say I'm an ass model for Calvin Klein, but um, <laughs> seeing as I'm not standing up, you can't actually, there's no humor in that without being able to point at um uh, <laughs> at my chunky butt um mate i uh, i hate that question because i hate being put into any kind of box but the best way that i can answer it is um uh is that i'm a a performance specialist that specializes in fast growth with uh with businesses and entrepreneurs you know i specialize specifically with business turning business owners who are running operations turning over anywhere between half a million up to 300 million from one team member up to you know a thousand or a couple of thousand team members mm-hmm. who uh, either getting there, starting out, got there, but they've reached a point of uh, resistance and they can't scale. They can't get their freedom. And my specialty is really scaling businesses quite quickly, but doing it in a way where we give the owners their life back, you know, because, you know, oftentimes business owners get into business because they want to have more freedom, end up with anything else. But so that's my main specialty, but I also have a mad obsession with human performance. And so I also do a lot of work with professional athletes, uh, elite, uh, elite military, special operations, um, and anyone really who's just looking for a significant mental edge in the area of performance as it relates to not just psychology, also, uh, you know, the physiology, uh, and also, you know, many aspects of uh, mental health as well. Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. So you've got a wide range of um, things that you do that you share with people. and I do. uh, I've I've been listening to your podcast. You're a mentor of mine. You may not know it, but I've been following you for about four or five years. And, uh, you know, I love your podcasts. And I know that you you have a, a big interest in, in military. And um, yes. And that sort of 
performance based. I, I'd served 26 years in the Royal Air Force myself. I remember. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, it, it, it's some people often say to me, you know, how do you maintain your drive? And I think it comes back to those those days, the early concepts of, of that sort of training that I, I went through. As I was looking through your your um, notes and that that I as I've been researching you, you know, I see that you've done all sorts of extreme sports and skydiving. I know is, is one of your your things. You know, I read in here in, in that you'd you'd been in a couple of situations and uh, you've almost died six times. What's that all about? Could you share a little bit more about that? <laughs> yeah, look, it's it's more like seven, but to be honest, I stopped counting because uh, it kind of started to get a little bit, you know, because everyone says you've got nine lives. And when I got to my seventh near-death experience, you know, I started to go, fuck, I'm starting to run out here, so I might just stop counting. Um, but look, it's kind of interesting. I could only really categorically say I've had one, what I'd call, near-death experience from an NDE perspective where I had an out-of-body experience. That was when I experienced a stroke in 2009. It's probably one of the most incredible experiences of my life. Um, you know, uh, I, there wasn't a white light, there wasn't a tunnel, but I, I certainly I certainly did get the opportunity, I guess you could say, to talk to God, uh, the non-religious version anyway. But um, outside of that, mate, you know, I've just been someone that's put myself in a lot of extreme situations. You know, I've, I've had two, you know, serious skydiving accidents. I've had motorbike accidents. Uh, you know, I've been shot at on the door of, I used to be in a, a, a private security contractor. I used to work in a lot of really bad venues. Uh, mm -hmm. My specialty was cleaning up violent venues. And so I've been, you know, shot at on the door of a club. I've had a gun put in my mouth. I've been stabbed. Uh, you can't see my beautiful sculptured face here, but I've literally got about 10 scars. One of them, which here, uh, you, can, you can kind of see it. there's actually a dent in my skull where I actually got hit with a piece of four by two and had a nail sticking out of it. And the nail, if it had just gone a millimeter the other way, it would have entered into my frontal lobe. But thankfully, it just uh, took a chunk of my skull out on the front, um, nearly drowned. Um, and yeah, so there's, there's a lots, lots of extreme situations that I've found myself in where I've nearly just, um, yeah, bit in the dust, so to speak. But, um, yeah. you know, every single time, I think that the biggest ones for me were, were probably the, the drowning. That was probably one of the most significant uh, emotional events in my life. The stroke uh, was another one, you know, and also, you know, the, and it might sound strange, but, you know, having a gun put in your mouth really does, you know, give you a bit of a reality check, um, especially when yeah. it was actually a military guy, actually. It was um, uh, a guy who was uh, ex-military. And, um, you know, those situations where you get to face your mortality, they do teach you a lot about yourself and they do give you a lot of perspective. They sure do. Yeah. I was just about to ask you, what did you gain from those experiences? And that's, yeah. Look, it's a good question. And I, and I, and I'd say, first of all, I, I gained the understanding that I'm a slow learner, you know, cause I think most people only need one near death experience to wake up. <laughs> Apparently I needed a couple more cause I'm a little bit slow off the start, but you know, it's kind of interesting. I, I am someone who's always seen myself as a bit of a, a slow learner, but when I get something, I really do get it. And, you know, for me, every, every, every one of those experiences represented a different phase in my life. And, you know, some of those experiences were early in my life when I was a private security contractor and I had pretty low levels of awareness. You know, I was very good at my job. You know, I was, I was very disciplined, you know, I, I was very structured, very military like in my lifestyle. Mm -hmm. um, but I was very low level of awareness. And so when I had these experiences, you know, transpire, I just put them down to exactly that experiences, but it wasn't until I started to evolve as a person, you know, it wasn't until I started to see bigger pictures in life and I started to have a bit more of a connection to, you know, and when I say faith here, I'm not talking about a religious context. I'm talking about a, you know, just a higher purpose. When yep, I started to yep. connect to things bigger than myself, that's when I started to, I guess you could say, read into the experiences rather than just going, oh, wow, that was a fucking cool experience. You know, being shot at, being stabbed, whatever, 
you know, then really sitting back and going, oh, wow, what is the, what is the meaning of this? You know, what is he? Because oftentimes, you know, we don't sit back and ask those questions. And I remember, you know, strokes specifically, as soon as the strokes started coming on, I just knew immediately that something great was about to happen, uh, which is ironic because considering what happened, like I, I, I had a full blown stroke, you know, I lost function of, uh, you know, parts of my body. I, I, I was unconscious for a period of time. I was hospitalized for, for a few weeks. So I had some serious uh, and some significant deficits as a result when it came to memory and speech afterwards that I had to work very hard to, to get back from. But the interesting thing was, is that was probably the pinnacle experience for me because from the moment that it onset, I just knew something special was happening. Uh, and all the way through that process, even regaining function, you know, it really did just teach me a lot about who I was and, and what I was here to do. Mm. And I remember when I attended Nissi and you, you shared this, this amazing slide with us where it showed the brain damage. And then yes. you know, a few years later, there was, there was no brain. Nine damage. years later or eight, yeah. eight, eight, nine years later, the, the scar tissue on the layer of brain that was affected completely resolved, which depending on which doctors you talk to, you know, there are some people in the medical profession that still live in the dark ages who believe that the brain cannot regenerate itself. And once scar tissue is present in the brain, it, it won't resolve. <coughs> um, which is interesting because, you know, there's a lot of, uh, evidence to suggest that that's not completely true. But when I um, got scanned the last time in 2018, uh, the doctor who, you know, who ordered the scan, he nearly fell out of his chair. Like when he saw the scan and he saw the layer and he saw the contrast that there was, you know, the one that we had from 2009, there's like a 20 cent piece, piece of scar tissue. Uh, and then the one um, in 2018, it's just completely resolved. It's gone. And, you know, they were trying to put it down to glitches in the original machine and maybe I didn't have a stroke. And it's like, well, hang on. There's a lot of evidence to suggest that, you know, there was something that happened that fucked me up pretty well. So, um, yeah. but it's, a, it's, a, it's entertaining from the perspective of, you know, the doctors want to create their meaning and I want to create mine. At the end of the day, you know, the doctors want to create a medical meaning in order to be able to understand label box and, and prescribe. Whereas for me, I just knew, you know, it was about something bigger and it, and it certainly was. That's, yeah, when when you shared that with me, I was I was I was sitting there and watching and observing. And as you said, it's about labeling and having to put a reason behind things. And one of the things that I've learned on my journey um, from being in the military and then moving into the civilian sector and then moving halfway around the world to live in Australia is we can do anything if we put our mind to it, and um, it doesn't have to be labeled. You know, we, we seem to sometimes limit ourselves with our beliefs and our thoughts. And uh, that kind of leads me into what I want to talk about today, which is, is leadership. Mm. And I know that you, you're, a, you're a leader in your industry. You are a leader um, within your, your businesses. I know that you've uh, been in business since the age of 23. So is it okay if we explore some some aspects of leadership and and oh and of course get into that yeah it's interesting over the last 10 years probably eight years specifically it's become one of my favorite subjects beautiful <coughs> so and what's interesting is going back 10 years ago i considered myself to be a shit leader so hence the journey <laughs> that was one of my first questions when when did you first realize that you were a a leader in some form how did that realization uh, come to you good question i think it was around 2012 2013 and you know i've been in business in this specific business like 21 years this year has been in business you know overall you know over 25 years now um and one of the things that i identified this is going back in 2012 is i always seem to get my businesses to a point and struggled to get them beyond that you know i'd get them to a point of scale where they were you know there was 
volume of trade, volume of profit, you know, uh, footprint of team uh, and, and business model. But I always used to struggle to get it past the point. And what I, what I realized was one day when I sat down, and I thought about it is I just wasn't really that good when it came to leading people. I was really good at direction, giving direction. I was really good <laughs> at, in some respects, you know, probably better then than I was now as a manager, but I just didn't understand the concept of leadership. I didn't understand the concept of enrollment. I didn't understand, you know, the concept of, you know, teamwork that's generated, you know, at a level above the individuals that are playing the game. Um, yeah. And it was, um, yeah, it was a big realization, but when I realized it, it was something that I became obsessed with. Yeah, it's, it's an area that I've been obsessed with for the last 15 to 20 years um, as I've so been through the military. Uh, we, we get trained all the time in leadership. We get exposed to leadership and um, it's just such a fascinating subject and then to layer into that human behavior. So you mentioned you, know, you didn't really understand what the role of leadership was or, or, or how leadership is perceived. How do you perceive it now? Now you've got a, a greater understanding. Of Look, it. it's interesting. Someone asked me a similar question earlier today, and I and I see um, leadership and parenting are very similar. Um, you know, there's a lot of attributes in parenting that require leadership, and there's a lot of attributes in leadership that require, you know, almost like a parental nature. Um, so, what was the question specifically? Just so I. So the, the question is, you know, what, how do you, how would you describe the role of a leader? The role of a leader now, the way I see it, um, with a little bit more. Um, I guess you could say experience under my belt is a key person of ownership, a key person who is responsible for the culture of the team, for the culture of the organization um, and for the coordination, you know? And so the me, to me, the role of a leader is uh, to really understand the team that they're working with in a way that enables them to use that information to attach motives to directions, you know, but also inspire collective and collaborative activities in ways that perhaps haven't been achieved, you know, at, at that point. But, um, but for me, the biggest part of leadership is being able to connect the dots, you know, cause sometimes you have to give a directive to the team and they have to carry it out. And some people might be motivated. Some people might not be, but you know, yeah. one of the things that I've learned, the more committed and the more motivated that a team is collectively, the faster the job will get done and the better the job will be. Yeah. And so, you know, oftentimes we don't enroll people until we realize there's a problem. And so oftentimes business owners will give a directive and then they'll come back and go, well, why isn't this done? You know, what's going on? You know, where, where's, where's it falling down? And not realizing that the whole team isn't actually enrolled on the project or the whole team aren't motivated, you know, when it comes to being enrolled on the project. And so for me, you know, the role of the leader is enrollment. The role of the leader is to connect the dots, but also the role of a leader. And this is a, I guess you could say in, in, as a pairing is to be incredibly visible. And, you know, I often say leadership, you know, uh, leadership to me is visibility. It's not a title. Leadership is a, is a visible game. It's not a game based on titles. Leadership isn't a title. It's, it's a behavior. Mm -hmm. And the role of a leader is to demonstrate the behaviors that are the expectation of the unit, expectation of the team, expectation of the organization, you know, and they are the benchmark of permission of how people should be behaving, you know, and when you look at it from a commercial context, as an example, oftentimes businesses will go to the trouble of, you know, identifying a purpose, identifying a mission, identifying values, but then, you know, that stuff just sits on the wall and there's no one, no one living, breathing and embodying what that means, you know, in a human form, not what that means in a behavioral form. And so for me, that's probably one of the most important parts of a leader is, you know, being someone who's defined, you know, the parameters of yes. the team, of the organization. What is the purpose? Why do we exist? You know, they've defined the objective and the mission 
of what they're the objective they're trying to complete. And then they've, you know, they've defined and elicited the, uh, the expected behaviors or the parameters around behaviors or, or of how they're going to get there. And that to me is what a value is. A value is, mm. you know, a behavior um, that, um, you know, enables you to decide how to behave in situations where you're unsure. And I think that's probably one of the hardest things when it comes to leadership is that level of visibility. You know, it's, it's, it's to me, you know, it's, I, I, uh, I would akin it to, it's like you, you're constantly under the microscope, you know, and, and, you know, anything you walk past, anything you, anything you walk past is permission and it's being able to, you know, not only hold yourself to that standard, but being able to hold other people to that standard, but understanding that you can't, I personally find it very difficult to uphold someone to another standard. If I am, if I'm not a living, breathing example of that myself. And so for me, you know, another aspect or pairing of the role of leadership is, um, you know, is congruency. It's being congruent between the behaviors and the enrollment on, you know, the objectives and the missions that, you know, that people are trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. When I started to dig into values, I realized that we make so many decisions around our values. We can make when we're clear on our values and I call it swimming between the flags, you know, a bit like on a beach when your values are clearly defined and those boundaries are set and the team know where to operate within, they can make decisions quite easily around that. Mm. And when they're aligned with those values, but if they're not, and like you say, if they don't uphold the standards as a leader, you know, the standard that we walk past is a standard we're willing to accept. Then that's where it all starts to get a little bit fuzzy and, um, and the, the team struggle then to be able to move forward with that. So, you know, I, just taking on board what you were saying there, what sort of lessons can we learn from, from our mistakes as leaders? Because as leaders, we are human beings. We're, we're fallible as everybody else is. Um, you know, my question would be, what's one of your biggest mistakes that you've made in leadership and, and what did you learn from that? Oh, gosh, mate, it's a fucking greatest hits list. I don't think there's one I can particular, particularly right now point to because there's just so many. And I think what mistakes, you know, I'll start with the first question, you know, what, 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 do you, what have your mistakes taught you? And they've taught me two things. They've taught me humility. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they've also taught me the importance of vulnerability. And I know that might sound a little bit strange, but um, if you bear with me, I'll, I'll, I'll explain a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I think mistakes are, I won't say go so far as to say they're essential. I just think it's, I think it's fair to say mistakes just happen. And, you know, there is no perfect world, but it's how we as leaders handle our mistakes and the mistakes of our team that determine what those mistakes mean you know and i think in many respects a lot of people are afraid to make mistakes and so therefore they're afraid to try too hard because if i try too hard maybe i might fail if i fail then there's a mistake and if i make a mistake then you know historically if we make a mistake at school you're going to get in trouble and so for me you know i don't think mistakes should be viewed as things that are wrong i think they should be viewed as things that help us identify gaps you know a mistake mistake by virtue helps us identify a knowledge gap a skills gap an experience gap and you know to me our relationship with mistakes says everything about our ability to succeed our relationship with failure you know, it says everything about our ability to succeed. Because if we don't have a good relationship with mistakes, if we don't have a good relationship with failure, when it happens, we'll be embarrassed about it and we won't share it. We won't have the humility to share it. We won't have the vulnerability to go into how it impacted us. And we'll, in most cases, we'll just try and pretend it didn't happen or we'll, we'll just glean over it. And therefore missing the entire function of what a mistake is, which is to teach. You know, every time we make a mistake, every time we fail, the, you know, the role of failure, the role of making mistakes is to identify gaps of skills, knowledge, and experience so that we can then consciously go, ah, oh, right, I'm missing something here. Let's go and fill in that gap. And I think, you know, by virtue 
the thing that mistakes have taught me is number one, they've taught me a massive humility. I'm very fucking human, but they've taught me the, the importance of vulnerability of being able to share those mistakes in healthy ways so that when people make their own mistakes, they're taking away, you know, far more valuable lessons than just shame and guilt. You know, cause I think most people they take yeah. from mistakes, shame and guilt, you know, failure, shame and guilt. Whereas for me, that's incredibly unproductive. You know, one of the most powerful things that we can take away from a mistake or a failure is a skill is a knowledge is a new skill, a new piece of knowledge or a new experience that will enable us to, you know, get to another, to me, life is like Donkey Kong, you know, and every now and then the fucking, you know, the, the big ape in the sky throws a barrel at us and he gets us, you know, sometimes it's on stage one, sometimes it's on stage 10, you know, sometimes it's on, you know, floor one of stage five, but wherever it hits us, ultimately it tells us, okay, that's, we've got a skill to get to that level. And if you want to get to the next level in Donkey Kong, then you've just got to get better. And how do you get better? You keep practicing the same level over and over and over and over. You keep making the same mistakes over and over until you get to a point like, fuck, there's got to be a better way. Mm -hmm. And we find that better way. And so for me, you know, I think mistakes are an incredibly important part. What they have taught me is the importance of the, the humility of staying very human, but also the humility in being able to share them in vulnerable ways so that others can adapt the same philosophy, you know, because I, I want my entire team, I want all of my clients, you know, to not have shame and guilt when it comes to their mistakes, but to have, you know, a level of pride. First of all, you tried. Okay. And secondly, now that you've tried and you failed, great. What did you get? Yeah. What was the benefit? What was the value? You know, the value of your mistake is the lesson that you get from it. If mm-hmm. you don't get any lesson from your mistake, then it's worthless. Yeah. And then you're just going to repeat it again. Yeah, I, this is such an important message that I bring to a lot of young leaders is um, the failure is great. <coughs> failure means that we've tried something. Failure means that we've given it a go. Like you say, we're going to have, have a breakthrough. We're going to have a, 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 a gaps analysis. But even more than that is encouraging people to be vulnerable and um, to have grace and humility to be able to put your hand up when you've, you've kind of messed up and you say, hey, yeah, I kind of, I kind of cocked that up. And you know what, when we talk about this from a leadership perspective and a cultural perspective, I have found one of the most potent form, one of the most potent things I can do to connect deeply with my team is to be vulnerable, mm. to talk about the, th- the mistakes that I've made in a meaningful way, not just sit there and fucking, oh yeah, oh, I made this mistake and oh, you know, not <laughs> complaining about it. But when we talk about mistakes in meaningful ways where people go, fuck, I can't believe he shared that. Mm-hmm. That vulnerability builds levels of trust that you can't in most cases get in any other way. You know, because it provides a level of context that's very difficult to get, you know, just day to day. And when you share things of a deep nature, of a personal nature with others, by virtue of sharing things that are deep, the connection creates more depth. There is greater depth to the connection, greater depth to the connection, greater levels of trust, greater levels of trust, greater levels of loyalty, greater levels of loyalty, greater levels of enrollment, you know, of commitment. Yeah. And it's one of those things that, um, yeah, that really does support the uh, leadership at large. It does. And I think it, it benefits the culture as well. You mentioned the culture and how important it is, because I think if the leader can demonstrate vulnerability and put their hand up when they've messed up and um, take the learning from that, that then encourages the team to, to do the same. So things don't get swept under the carpet. And There's they're nothing more worse flag- than people not willing to make a mistake. <laughs> sorry, not willing to admit they've made a mistake. And there's nothing worse than people who aren't willing to take responsibility for a mistake. Mm-hmm. And as a leader, it's our job to do both of those things really well. How do we you know, take responsibility and how do we admit our mistakes, but do it in a way that isn't self-deprecating, but it's mm-hmm. self-expanding. 
you know, and that self-expansion flows onto the team that we're working with and helps them expand themselves and their expression and their capacity to not just perform, but also to adopt. Because this is the role of a leader. You asked this before, and I did miss this one. The role <laughs> of a good leader, you know, is also, there's so many fucking roles, right? There's so many things we've got to do is to create more leaders. Because that is by virtue what leadership should do is it should inspire people to behave in a way that the leader does. So therefore the leader is no longer required and it becomes mm -hmm. a succession of skills. You know, you've only got to look at the, one of the greatest mistakes in leadership. People say, what's the biggest mistake you've ever seen in leadership? And I'll say, well, look at certain segments of humanity right now. Because when you look at certain segments of humanity right now, that's just an adoption of behaviors that have been passed down over, you know, hundreds of years, in some mm -hmm. cases more. And, you know, some of those behaviors are great examples of how we should be doing things. And some of those behaviors are great fucking warnings of how we shouldn't be doing things. Yeah, but, um, yeah. yeah. I was only having this conversation with a business owner just the other day and they were reluctant to move towards vulnerability. They were like, well, I don't know. I don't think a leader yeah. should be vulnerable. It's a yeah. weakness. Yeah. And yeah. Um, it took, it took a lot of conversation to, uh, to help them, identify a different perspective and then they start to see it. And um, that, that for me was, was a massive breakthrough. So just as we talk about the world and, and leadership, what would be one of the best examples of leadership that you've ever experienced? Ooh. And why was it so useful for you? Mm. Oh, fuck. That's a tough question. Um, whew, what's one of the greatest examples of leadership that I've seen and why did it inspire me? Hmm. Wow. I've, first of all, great question. Secondly, stumped. Um, <laughs> and, and again, because when I think about leadership, the first place that I don't go is I don't go to uh, anyone in a political standing. You know, if anything, one of the greatest, you know, oh gosh, that's actually a really tough question. That's actually a really tough question. One of the greatest examples of leadership that I've actually personally seen. Hmm. Wow, mate, you've actually stumped me. And wow. what's interesting <laughs> is how hard it is that I'm actually finding to actually find, um, yeah, an example outside of, and this is going to sound a little bit contrite. Um, and this might actually, this is going to sound completely self serving and maybe it is, but it's not meant or intended that way. One of the greatest examples of leadership that I've probably seen is my son. Mm. And the reason I say that, like he's seven and we've been having the conversation around what leadership is and what leadership looks like and how leadership mm -hmm. behaves since he was, and you've been to Nissi, so you've seen the video yep. of where he recites the values of the organizational values. My son at the age of three and a half, four could recite all of the organizational, all 13 values of the company. Um, now anyone can say, well, you can teach any a child to say anything, but you know, he's got a genuine curiosity. But the reason that he is, to me, a great example of a leader is because oftentimes when we're in public, he will look to other people and he will look at a behavior and he'll actually ask him the question and he'll say, dad, is that what a leader would do? And oftentimes I will say, you know, yes or no. Oftentimes I don't even need to answer. He'll just look at something and someone will do in a supermarket, at a shopping center, at a amusement park and go, dad, that's not, that's not what a leader would do, would that? And it's just like, to me, it's just like the, the, the wisdom in that. And also then being able to see him grow as a leader and be able to play with his friends and have conversations around leadership and have conversations around the values of our organization. So look, it might, it might sound like there's a little bit of bias there, but he is probably one of the greatest little leaders that I've seen, you know, um, 
and I can't wait till he's at an age where he's able to actually probably move into the business. He, he's already asking to work in the business, has been asking to work in the business for the last four or five years now, um, three, four years now. But um, yeah, he's just so willing to, you know, and for a seven-year-old, this might sound a little bit strange, but he's so willing to admit his mistakes. He's so yeah. willing to, you know, um, own the things and the mistakes that he makes. And for a seven-year-old, I just find it incredibly inspiring. And it's kind of interesting because he, you know, he is a product of the leadership of the family. And whenever I see him behave in ways where he asks questions around leadership or he demonstrates leadership behavior, he literally, I literally find by virtue of watching him behave that it holds me to a high standard, you know, and that's what a leader, that's what a good leader does. A good leader behaves in a way yeah. that makes you want to hold yourself to the same standard, if not higher. And I can say hand on heart every time I'm with my son, every fucking time, sorry for swearing, mate. Uh, that was for my son because he would pull me up on that. Um, he inspires me to be a better person. And I think that's, you know, it's a big part of leadership. Yeah. And that, just what you said there, sorry, mate. And that's for my son. That's him ho again, holding you accountable, even though he's not present. And, and he's the, the only person in the world who has permission to call me out if I swear. And um, <laughs> like anyone can call me out, but if I swear or if I yell, mm -hmm. he has permission and he does it every time, every single time I swear, Without a shadow of doubt, he could be across the room. He could be on the other side of the fucking office or anywhere. And he'll hear me drop the F-bomb or the S-bomb and he'll go, dad, bad word. And I'll go, thanks, mate. Sorry. Or if I yeah. yell, he'll go, dad, you're yelling. And I'll be like, okay, I'm, I apologize for yelling. Let me try again. You mm -hmm. know, and just by virtue of that, he holds me to an incredibly high standard. And that, um, mm. that's something I'm very grateful is, for. This is what we were talking about, that, that standard that a leader, it needs to to in, instill, to aspire to, to uphold themselves to, but also to hold the team and, and the people around them accountable to. Accountability and we're not is just, key. We're, we're not just talking about leading down. We're talking about leading sideways and leading up as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I but think also using the collective lot. to lead. And I think because accountability is a really important part of leadership and management <clears> as well, yes. But to me, you know, leadership is often something that can be very difficult when it's at scale. And, you know, if you're at scale and you've got a lot of people that are under you or working for you, it's very hard to get everyone to commit to you, you know, or it's very hard mm -hmm. to hold every single person accountable. Cause if there's one of you and you've got 10, 20, 30, 40 people in your team, how do you hold every single person accountable? Well, yeah. the reality is you can't, you know, at a, at a micro level, but what you can do is you can instill accountability within the team yes. to themselves yes. and to the team. You know, and that's why, you know, people often say to me, you know, because I am a coach as well. And people say to me, oh, you know, I'd love to do some one-on-one -on -one coaching for you. And I say, well, look, to be honest with you, I don't actually do a lot of one-on-one -on -one coaching. Most of the coaching I do is group coaching. They go, well, why? And I say, because of the performance I get out of group co coaching absolutely annihilates the performance that I get out of one-on-one -on -one coaching. And people say, well, why is that? And I say, well, if I'm coaching you, if I'm leading you as one person and you make a commitment to me and you let me down, you're letting down one person. Okay. Yep. But if we're leading in a team environment, in a group environment and you make a commitment to me and eight other people, okay, you now have, you know, you now have to consider you're not going to let one person down. You're going to let eight people down, nine people down. You're a mammal. Okay. And by virtue of you being a mammal, you have certain primal impulses that you can't control. One of those primal impulses is to maintain social order. And one of the th aspects of social order that we try and maintain is a, uh, is a level of connection to our social herd. And we're terrified that we're going to get kicked out of it. Mm -hmm. And so by virtue, you know, there's this old saying that people often do more for others than they will for themselves. You don't need to try and understand yeah. that. Just realize that's a fundamental human, that's a human trait is they'll often do more for others than they will for themselves because it's a herd behavior. It's a collaborative behavior. Mm -hmm. uh, and so for me, yeah, I think um, 
learning how to enroll as a leader commitment at scale beyond just committing to one person, you know, is an incredibly powerful aspect of performance because now we're introducing what's called the Pygmalion effect. And what we know with the Pygmalion effect is, you know, when people commit to one person, as I've already said, there's, there's not a lot of letdown if they let one person down, but if they commit to multiple people, it increases the probability of follow through and execution by between six to 800%. Yep. And you saw this at Nail It and Scale It, at Nail It and Scale It, where we enroll the whole room. And it's, you know, that could be a, a, a group of participants at an event. That could be a group of, you know, uh, special operatives. That could be a group of, you know, uh, footballers. But essentially, all I did was enroll everyone together on an outcome, on an objective. Mm-hmm. I got everyone. And for those people who don't know what I'm talking about, you know, Steve attended a program called Nail It and Scale It. And during this program, I, I get them to commit to outcomes and to execution on particular outcomes and objectives. And I am able to get 95% of the room to commit to completing 12 hour objectives in most cases in about six to eight hours. And one of the methods that I use to do this is group enrollment. And that to me is one of the greatest examples of leadership at large is how do you enroll people at large at scale to commit to others other than yourself to engage primal elements of self nature and of nature to ensure that things get done at a very high level. Uh, and that to me yeah. is, yeah, is, 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 is gold. And what you were saying there about enrollment is, you know, the, again, it's the vulnerability of a leader is to bring people into that enrollment stage in the planning element of any task or any job. One of the things that I said, you know, realized as I, as I developed my leadership skills within the military was it's not up to me to make the decision. I'm, I'm pretty much the shit stopper as I, as I used to call it, that, you know, that's where the, the, the decision was made, but to bring my team on board, and get them to, to to have the opportunity to weigh in so that they'd have the opportunity to buy in. And then together we would move on that objective and complete mm. it. And, you know, to be able to do that, it, it, it takes a, a certain amount of vulnerability and courage to sort of put, put everything out there and say, hey, this is the vulnerability way. Vulnerability is certainly an important ingredient, but it's not the only one, you know, because as a leader, we, we have to demonstrate vulnerability in order to develop connection. You know, we have to demonstrate vulnerability in order to develop trust and rapport so that people will follow us, you know, into a mission, into an objective, into a battle. But we also need to be able to connect the dots. And that's what I was saying earlier, because it's one thing for someone to trust you. It's another one thing for you to like me, Steve. It's another one thing for you to, to, to trust me, Steve. But can I motivate you to complete an outcome? Yeah. You know, and that's when we talk about connecting the dots as a leader, vulnerability is important. And I don't want to get away from that, but I don't want to, I don't want people to leave people thinking that's what I think is the key, no. you know, vulnerability. Tell me more about the dots. Well, the dots. Tell me more about this. The values. Of the dots. The dots are the right. values. You know, we look at, you know, every individual in a team is going to have shared values and they're going to have individual values. And if you've selected and you've built a team well, if you've done it intelligently, you will collaborate and you'll coordinate and you'll bring together a group of people that are aligned on common values. Okay. And so therefore, when you're trying to enroll and connect the dots at large, it's a lot easier if everyone's sharing same or similar values, because what a value is, is it's a motive. It's a reason to, you know, it's mm-hmm. when we value something, there's a value there and our value, our value breeds our values, you know, and the things that we find important are the things that determine how, what we do. And if we don't find something important, then we're not going to actually do it. And so sometimes our job as a leader is to connect the dots and they might go, well, this objective, it's not really that important. You go, well, it may not seem to be important, but when we consider the value of, and we can enroll and connect it to all of a sudden, something that was just a mundane task now, all of a sudden has a level of, and it's not so much about priority as it is about value. You know, it's about how do we create a value 
towards a behavior whereby as a natural consequence that behavior takes place you know because oftentimes people say to me you know what's the most important thing when it comes to motivation i'm like are you kidding me like that to me that question is so hard to answer but here's what i know if you do not know the things that are important you'll struggle to know how to motivate yourself Yep. You know, and the only reason I'm good at motivating my team and the teams that I work with is because I know what's important to them. And when you know what the values are collectively and individually, they're the things that you talk to when you set the directions. They're the things that you mm-hmm. connect the dots to, you know, when it comes to the outcomes and the, the effort that's required. And then as a natural yeah. consequence, you know, because why is it that certain people can do certain things and those behaviors are autonomous? You know, why is it for some people are really easy to make money and for others, it's really hard? You know, because some people really value the, you know, the, the essence of money. Some people really value what money can give them. And some people just legitimately don't. They want to because socially they're told that they should, but they don't. And so as a natural consequence, they don't do the things as a natural consequence that produce money. People who, yeah. you know, brought up and created and, you know, were reared to have a genuine value on money as a natural consequence, they autonomously demonstrate the behaviors that collect it. They autonomously demonstrate the behaviors that maintain it. But if you don't value money, you won't autonomously demonstrate those behaviors. <coughs> and if you've got a tangled hierarchy, God forbid, you might actually have a value that's in conflict with that. Because <coughs> you might value, you know, you might go, well, I don't value, uh, you might come to the awareness, oh, shit, I don't actually value money, uh, but I do value family. Mm-hmm. But you might have some kind of a tangled hierarchy where you, on some level, based on your upbringing, think that money causes problems in families. Now, that's not a hard, that's not a big leap because most people no, probably had fights leap. in their family. <laughs> Most people know two out of three marriages in this country end in divorce, 80% of divorce are over financial issues. Mm-hmm. You know, most people have heard this, you know, money is the root of all evil. Money doesn't grow on trees. Most people have seen enough cartoons to know that wealthy people are depicted as bad people. Yep. And so if you're someone that has a value on relationships, but you've grown up in an environment where there's volatility around money and relationships, then you'll avoid money at all costs. Mm-hmm. And so it won't, not only will it be a val- not be a value, it'll almost be like an anti-value. Now, how does yeah. that play when you take that person and put them into a fucking into a business? It plays yeah. out with someone who struggles to make money, struggles to find opportunity. And how do you fix that as a problem? Well, you connect the dots and you start yeah. finding a way to go, well, hang on. If I can just build up enough evidence in your brain, if I can build up enough connections in your brain and by connecting them to dots, it's literally connecting the neurons between yeah. you making money. Because if I can sit there and let's say I find someone who's in that scenario and I can say, okay, well, let's just spend the next three hours. And over the next three hours, you're going to tell me 500 reasons why making more money is going to enable you to have deeper, better, healthier connections with your family, spend more time with your family. And we really uncover that. You'll have 500 new fucking little pins (laughs) connected to a behavior that weren't there before. And then all of a sudden, those little pins start acting as a a prod and then all of a sudden you start feeling compelled to do things that you haven't been haven't done before mm-hmm. and then if you engage and you and you you know with frequency and repetition and, and, and you keep going before you know it that's not disconnected the dots that's now a neural network and before you know it it's a compulsive behavior and it's an yes. autonomous behavior and that's the goal the goal should be is how do we take as many of the things that we need to do as possible and turn them into to autonomous behaviors and that's where you know values are a huge part of that yeah that's a that's a fantastic explanation, Cohen. Thanks for putting the meat on the bones around joining up the dots because uh, I'm sure there will be listeners out there going, dots, what's going on about dots? But when you start yeah. to talk about neural pathways and being able to connect that with people's values for them to be able to, to, to see the, 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 the value and the, the purpose within that, so they're, they're autonomously driven and, to, to achieve and that. To, to create a visual, like a behavior is nothing more than a neural net. You know, it's a net of neurons that are connected together that fire in a very specific way. And every time they fire a behavior, 
gets spat out. Mm-hmm. And our yeah. goal is to surgically create the neural nets that we want to create. So as a natural consequence, we have to create them. But mm-hmm. when they're activated as a natural consequence, it spits out the behavior that we want, not necessarily the behavior that we don't want. But that's something that has to be done with frequency and repetition and reinforcement. Mm. Yeah, pre-programming. The soft <laughs> skills that are going on up there. Now, I'm really mindful of the time, Kerwin, and uh, I've got two more questions that I'd like to ask you before Far we away. wrap it up. Firstly, how would you describe your purpose for being on this earth? And then how do you link that in with what your business provides? Great question. Um, look, I, I feel kind of blessed that I stumbled across my purpose in my late 20s. I worked out because I sat down and I started looking at you know, the things that I'd done. I'd come out of a business with a bit of money in my pocket um, in my late twenties. And so I had the time to spend, uh, you know, on a beach reflecting on my life, uh, and situations and circumstances. And I worked out that one of the things that I value above almost anything else is I really love to help people. You know, when I look at my life where I show up, where I naturally perform, I just, I just love to help people. And so for me, you know, my purpose is, is definitely to help people. The commercialization of that and it's kind of interesting because it's changed uh, in the last 10 years. Because going back 10 years ago, my purpose was to help people. Mm-hmm. My business's purpose was to help business owners succeed because that was the commercialization of my purpose. Yeah. But what's interesting, 10 years later, I've now just trimmed it straight back to I help people. You know, it's, yeah. and, and, and that's now my commercial purpose because, you know, I now do a lot more work um, with the general public than I did. 10 years ago. I'm doing a lot more work mm-hmm. with athletes and other areas and industries than I've ever done before. And so now I'm not just working with business owners. Now I'm now working with people across the board. I'm now working with parents and athletes and, you know, um, executives who aren't themselves entrepreneurs, but they do want to perform at, you know, higher levels in their own life. And so for me, mm-hmm. you know, it's interesting, especially when you've got social media, because I, you know, my nine right now, 98% of my commercialization is helping business owners. But if you look at my audience on social media, 80% of my audience on social media, they're not in business, you know, because the stuff yeah. that I talk about as, a, as, and that's, you know, that's the cut through that I get with social media. And this is what we discussed in our first conversation together. You know, the cut through I get on social media is, yeah, I'm a business dude. And, but everyone goes, but you also talk about parenting. You know, you're also talking about mental health, addiction and ADHD and dyslexia and, you know, nutrition and hydration. And it's like, man, I just talk about everything I do. Mm -hmm. you know what i mean (laughs) i just talk about all the things that i'm doing and it just so happens that i'm obsessed about doing some really interesting stuff and so as a natural consequence you know that gives me a lot of bandwidth to you know to talk about different things Mm -hmm. and i just talk about things that are real what's going on in my life and just by virtue of that that um is something that a lot of people can relate to and it's not just things that entrepreneurs relate to it's things that you know, everyone, everyone else relates to because it's not just, it's not just everyday, you know, it's not just executives and everyday people that have problems when it comes to being a parent. Entrepreneurs have problems as a parent, you know, (laughs) athletes have problems when they're parents, Uh, you know, it doesn't matter where you are, what you do. If you have a kid and you haven't been trained to be a parent, AKA nobody, you know, everybody, I should say, then, you know, you're probably going to have a few challenges. And so I talk about the things where I have challenge and I just happen to be obsessive enough to want to solve all the problems that I have. And by virtue of that, I want to share that with the world. That's beautiful. That's, I, I love that. And that's what I feel that I certainly get from you when I, I follow you on social, you know, the, the, you, you give me life lessons, you inspire me through what you share. Sometimes it helps me in my business. Sometimes it helps me in my private life. Sometimes it inspires me that I have to go on and share it with, with my group and um, you know, the followers that I have on social media and they come back and they tell me how much it's impacted them. So, you know, Please keep sharing. It's something that I've, I've 
role modeled from you. I, I share as much as I can for free um, because I know there's people out there who who may not be able to have access to that information and it could just change their, their life, just one little bit of in, insight. So uh, thank you for what you do. Yeah, it's a pleasure. You mentioned that um, you're, you're spending more time with the public or you're getting able to see the general public more often. I noticed that you're going on tour soon. Yes. So my final thing would be to say to you, for the listeners today, how would they find out more about Kerwin Ray? How would they be able to possibly come on one of these road shows and, and hook up with you or, or to find out what you do? Great question. First of all, right now, most of what I do is, is still very much in the entrepreneurial space. And so I have a few programs. I have Nail It and Scale It, which you've attended. Incredible three-day immersion implementation and program. Uh, I have a higher level group as well, which is called K2 Elite. And that's where I work with people over a you know, one to six, seven, eight, nine year period to help them execute and implement, you know, all of the aspects that we learned during those three days. But we're literally about to bring back a new program called Power to Create, which you're aware of as well, yes. you know, which is basically the, you know, this to me is the user's manual. This to me is something that anyone, anywhere, no matter what your background, creed, color, size, shape, orientation can use to learn how to better perform, you know, in life. Um, the event that we've got coming up actually on tour shortly is called fast growth summit social media series. And that's really, you know, us going around and sharing and showing people how we use social media and how we monetize it. Cause look, I think it's fair to say that a lot of people use social media, but not very, very few people make money from social media, you know, and my jam is, and with fast growth summit, which we're going to be touring with is going to be not only just showing people all the different forms of social media, everybody's aware is, but how do you use it in a way that builds something and creates a revenue versus just, you know, sucks the life out of your time or sucks yeah. the time out of your life, so to speak. <laughs> That's brilliant. Cohen, thank you so much for jumping on and sharing as freely as you have done this afternoon. I'm sure that uh, leaders across the world who are going to be listening to this podcast will be able to take something away. And I'm not just talking about young emerging new leaders, but uh, experienced long in the tooth leaders. Now, I think some of the things that you share today are going to provide different perspectives for people all around the world. So thank you so much for your time. And thank you so much for sharing your wisdom today. I'm really grateful. Steve, I appreciate you having me on the show, mate. Hey, I hope you've enjoyed this latest episode of the Raw Leadership Podcast with me, Steve Barker. I hope that it's whetted your appetite. I hope that it's given you some insights, some strategies, some perspectives that you can now go and apply to your leadership journey. Because as I said at the very start, leadership is not a badge. It's a skill. I would love it if you could take a few moments, if you think it's worthy, to jump on the platform that you're listening upon to leave me a review and to be able to share this with other people. If you are interested in what I do with regards to leadership development, check out my website, stevebarker.com.au. Until next time, wherever you are in the world, whatever you're up to, I hope that you stay safe and you continue to inspire those around you. Until next time, toodaloo.